Well, over the past two weeks, we have looked at this parable in Luke chapter 15 about the two sons and the father. And uh, we're going to come back to this tonight for the third and final time and, and look at the whole chapter, kind of back up and get a perspective on the entire chapter of Luke 15, specifically to see or get a broader view of what God, of what God is about uh, in the world. What are some of God's central actions? And Jesus tells three parables as we've just heard them read, one about the lost sheep, then about the lost coin, and then about the lost son or sons, we might say, these two sons who are both lost. And this gives us a window uh, into what God is on about in the world. What are God's primary, what's God's primary work? And God is a God who is finding lost things. And the joy of finding something lost is at the center of this chapter uh, as well. Um, about 12 years ago, we were moving from an apartment in the city into our home in Jamaica Plain. And, you know, we moved in. It was about this time of year, so it was warm. And then a couple months go by, as you know, it's about to start getting a little cooler. And then it got cold. And then we're, like, looking for our winter coats. And we couldn't find our winter coats. And so we had to go through the first couple of months of winter just kind of layering more things. You know, we didn't have the coat. And I was pretty disappointed. I had a shell that I liked a lot that I would use for biking around the city and things. And then one day in February, I was down in the cellar and I just like happened to see, I'd searched high and low throughout the entire house. I'd opened every box that I thought I, that we had. And I saw this one box that had somehow escaped my notice and was unopened. And I opened it up and of course, there were our winter coats and there was my well-beloved parka. I was way too excited because, you know, a coat shouldn't really matter. Um, but I was really excited about that. And I know you've all had that kind of experience where something that you like has gone missing and then you found it again. And the joy of that, the joy of that rediscovery is at the heart of Luke 15 and at the heart of God, that God is a God who is finding lost things and then inviting people into the joyous celebration of those things being found. And actually we see a progression in Luke 15 uh, of the value of those things. First, it's one sheep in a hundred then it's one coin out of 10, and then it's one son out of two, or as we've looked at it, it's really two sons out of two that are, well, we don't know if the elder son ever really gets in to the banquet, but there, there's this elevation of the value of things. And after each is found, there is an invitation to the celebration. So in verse six, the shepherd invites his friends and neighbors to come celebrate with me because I found this lost sheep. And the woman invites her neighbors to come and celebrate with her in verse nine because she's found the coin. She probably spent a lot more money on the celebration than the coin was worth, but it was a, just a joyous occasion because something had been found. And then of course, in the feature story of these three, it is the father who kills the fattened calf and invites the entire village to come and celebrate with him at his banquet table because this son that was lost is now found. The son that was dead is now alive again. And this invitation to the feast, uh, common to all these stories, and I should note that the whole chapter builds toward the asymmetry of the elder brother. Because we end Luke 15 with one character on the outside of the banquet having been entreated by his father to come and celebrate with him and his younger brother and all the village, but we're not sure if he comes in. And it's this invitation that is the, the theme of Luke 15 uh, that is, uh, kind of stares us in the face at the end of the story of the sons. And this invitation points to God's work in a broader way uh, that awakens something, I, I think, deep in our hearts, which is to say that we, we all of us, we long to be at a feast, at a banquet, joyously celebrating. There's something about this that, 
that digs deep within us what we see, this picture of a banquet at the end of Luke 15. When the scriptures speak about God's work of salvation, they often speak about it in terms of a banquet. So Isaiah 25, verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Or at the end of the scriptures, in the book of Revelation, we are all brought into a feast, which is referred to in Revelation 19 as the marriage supper of the Lamb, where people from every tribe and tongue and nation that have been washed by the blood of Jesus and cleansed from their sin will be celebrating and feasting with the, the, the Lord Jesus himself, the king over all, as he's defeated his enemies, and making merry together. It's no wonder, too, that the first miracle that Jesus performs in the gospel according to John is his turning water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana. There we have, you know, feasts in the ancient world, just like fe- or wedding feasts in the ancient world, just like wedding feasts today. They're big, wonderful times of celebration where we bring out everything extravagant. They're full of joy and making merry. They're built around a relationship of love that's supposed to be sacrificial love from one to another. And it's no accident that Jesus signifies, this is why I've come. I've come to invite you to the feast, to restore you to what you were created for. Honestly, whatever our religious persuasion, whatever we believe or don't believe about God and about human beings, this life-giving, feasting reality that God invites us to resonates deeply, even if we couldn't articulate it in that way. One piece of evidence I would point to is how do fairy tales end, you know, and they lived happily ever after, usually in some relationship of love, in a kingdom of peace, with a, a, a table of abundance, and that's not just sentimentality, the reason that story gets used over and over again. It's actually because that is, in a sense, the deep narrative of the world as God has created it, that it's moving us to that place, that final destination of a banquet and a feast together. So, of course, rebellion and sin and evil in our world, all the ways that we know that we're broken, they create static that can kind of over, uh, be overlaid on that deep longing to be at the feast of God. Um, But I would say that no matter how loud that static gets, and it might be really loud for some of you in your lives right now, that it will never be able to drown out that deeper heart and longing in every soul to come to God's banquet table, to be at a place of feasting and joy in the presence of the living God. Again, even if we can't articulate it that way, this is, this is what we were made for. And as Jesus tells these stories, that theme of the banquet and the joyful celebration of the lost being found uh, threads itself through each of these stories and is a reminder of what God's central activity is in the world. God, the God that we worship, and it's really important, you know, if you say, well, we believe in God, well, who, what is God like? What is God doing in the world? Well, this is, this is a chapter that reveals to us the very heart of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he's a God who is finding lost things and bringing them to his banquet table and inviting us to celebrate with him because of his great work. Of course, we can be lost. We can miss this invitation. And as we've seen over the last two weeks, the younger brother was lost, the elder brother was lost, the younger brother was lost by, uh, you know, his free-spirited rebellion, the elder brother was lost by his moral conformity as a means of controlling God. Both of them misunderstood the heart of the father. Both of them see their father as a means to their self-determined ends. Both seek to fulfill the longing for more by remaining in control. And both give us a picture of what 
The prophet Isaiah communicates in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray, and every one of us has turned to his own way. And don't forget, by the way, that Jesus knew that passage very well. He interpreted his own ministry through that passage, and I wouldn't be, it's not a, it's not a stretch really to, to imagine that Jesus had Isaiah 53 in his mind as he tells the parable about the sheep that was lost at the beginning of this chapter. So God is a God finding the lost and in the joy of that restoration, bringing us to his banquet table. And I'm suggesting that's what all of us were made for. But I want to dig a little deeper in this text, in the whole chapter, and explore at least two dynamics of God's activity that, that in a sense, fuel the joy of his banquet, as we see it in, uh, in these three stories. And the first one is that, that we come to this banquet, the, the banquet of the Father is given to us as a, as a free gift. It costs the recipients nothing to come. It's given to them free of charge. Uh, I actually don't know that much about sheep. Uh, I don't like to eat sheep or lamb, but that's a story for another time. Um, it's connected to some time I had in Africa long ago. But um, we're told that sheep are not very bright animals from those who do know sheep and that they often simply wander off. And when they do, when a sheep wanders off and becomes lost and separated them from the flock, it essentially becomes paralyzed. It lies down and refuses to budge. Which is to say that at least in terms of the first story in Luke 15, that the sheep does nothing to prompt the search of the shepherd. The sheep doesn't do anything to initiate. It's the shepherd who initiates the search on his own. And then as we read in verse 5, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And then he carries the sheep home. So what did the sheep contribute to being restored to his place at the feast? The answer is nothing contributed nothing. He didn't even have to walk home. He was carried by the shepherd who joyfully initiated the process of finding. All the sheep does is to accept the fact that he's found. The same dynamic, of course, is true of the coin, the story about the coin. A coin is an inanimate object, so it's quite obvious that it can't contribute anything to being found either. The woman uh, seeks diligently, we're told in verse 8, until she finds it. And then we see that same dynamic, that nothing was contributed in the story of the younger son in particular. He returned to the village, remember, with a plan, a plan to pay back some of the debt that he had taken uh, all of his father's possessions and squandered them. He would be a hired servant, remember, who lives outside the homestead doesn't have to reconcile or deal with his brother in that way. He can earn some money and pay it back slowly. Sonship was out of the question. The insults that he had committed against his family were too great. In fact, in village life, in the ancient Middle Eastern world, when this story, where this story took place, when a son who had disgraced his family in this way by squandering wealth among the Gentiles returned home or doing something that was very shameful and would dishonor the family, um, they would break out, they had a ceremony for this. They'd break a large pot in front of the community and cry out, so-and-so is cut off from his people. That would have been the expectation. It's called the kazaza ceremony. It literally means to cut off. And that would have been his expectation. So his only hope in coming back was never to re-enter the family. It was maybe to be a hired servant and pay some of the debt back and have a little bit of his own, a, a little security that he didn't have when he was feeding the pigs. But we remember that, how that story worked out. The father ran to him, embraced him, put his arms around his neck, kissed him. And then the son says, look, I've sinned against heaven and, and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then the father basically almost seems like he doesn't hear him and just says, go get the best robe. Go get a ring. Go get shoes. 
And then go, by the way, and get the fattened calf and kill the fattened calf. And let's throw a feast because this son of mine who is dead is alive again, who is lost, is found. It's this incredible reality of grace. And it's the, it's the grace of the father in the story that, as we saw two weeks ago, that causes the younger brother to give up the second half of his speech. When he encounters the embrace and the kissing, these loud actions that speak of forgiveness and reconciliation to the son, he lets go of his plan to stay in control and become a hired servant. And he yields himself to the father's will in completeness and wholeness. In fact, actually, sometimes we might think, well, you know, you say it's free to kind of come to the banquet, of the, uh, the, the banquet that God is offering us, but what about repentance and faith? You know, isn't that something that we have to do? And I actually think these, these parables give us insight into the heart of repentance, true repentance. Remember, the sheep and the coin are held up as examples of sinners who repent. And what do they do? They accept being found. And the younger brother does the same. So I think we could unpack repentance, at least according to Luke 15, in this way. One, it's accepting being found. Two, it is an acknowledgement of one's unworthiness. The son says, look, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And then three, it's actually a relinquishing or a letting go of all that undermines the will of the one who has embraced you. So he lets go of the plan to be a hired servant because that wasn't his father's. His father didn't want a servant. He wanted his son. His father wasn't as concerned about the debt. He was concerned about the relationship. And so the son lets go of that. And I think that's a reasonable way to think about repentance, acceptance of the love of God, a love that was initiated. So there was a popular notion in the first century among the Jewish people that repentance was a work that we did that initiated God's response. So you repent and then God will come and embrace you. And this story is directly contradicting that view of repentance because Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The coin, the sheep, the, the younger son, they all had their own, they, they didn't contribute. This was a, a freely offered invitation to the banquet of the father in a powerful way. God acts, he seeks and finds the lost apart from actions on the part of the lost. And he brings them into the banquet free of charge. Those who accept and know that they are found enter in. Now, the elder brother, remember, he's also been found. The father went out and found him as well. But he hasn't yet accepted that reality. And we're left with that tension at the end of the story. Jesus is telling these stories to defend his practice of bringing in sinners and tax collectors and eating with them. And we're right to see Jesus as the shepherd, as the woman, and as the father. I think each of these three characters in the three parables are they're symbols of Jesus himself, the one who has come to seek and save the lost. And just remember that God initiates this plan of redemption, this coming to find us, long before there was any repentance on our part. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Paul writes that even while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And he writes in Romans 2, remember the kindness of God. Don't you remember that the kindness of God is to lead you to repentance? It's not a response to your repentance. It's to lead you to repentance. All of this, all of what I'm saying about repentance is just another way of talking about the fact that it's a free gift. It's just given to us. And that produces tremendous joy at the Father's banquet table. But just because we say it's free, and this is the, the second point about the inner dynamics of what God is up to in rescuing lost things and bringing us to his banquet table. Just because we say that it's free doesn't mean it's without cost. 
And we've seen this as well throughout Luke 15. And I want to revisit some of that territory as well. There's been a great cost to put on this banquet feast. And the cost was not paid by the one who was invited to the table, but it was paid by the one who did the finding. So let's consider, go back to the first story, the sheep again. What happens when the the shepherd finds the sheep? We see this in verse 5, I believe. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. So he puts the sheep on his shoulders. And what a shepherd would do when a sheep was lost is that they'd pick the sheep up. They'd wrap it around their shoulders or their neck. They'd tie the legs of the sheep together so they could hold the sheep with one hand and have one hand free as they're climbing over rocks and streams and through bushes and branches and everything else to get the sheep back to safety. To bring the sheep home requires a high cost and a significant burden. If you've ever carried something heavy over uneven terrain, you know this is something that can take tremendous effort. The early church understood this. They understood that Jesus was the good shepherd. And they had probably a more accurate picture of this than we often do. Because there's a depiction of Jesus as the good shepherd. This was an important uh, image of Jesus for the earliest Christians. In the mid-third century, in a town called uh, Dura Europis in Syria, which was just excavated in 1931-32, there was a private home of someone of means that was a home or a house church. And there was a baptistry, even in that homestead, And there's a fresco on the baptistry wall, and it's of Jesus as the good shepherd. And what you see is Jesus, who just looks like a man, and then a shepherd that's literally about half the size of the man wrapped around his neck. Now, when I say, when we say good shepherd, what do most of you think of? I know at least what I think. You think of like a puppy golden retriever, a little like lamb that's so cute and cuddly under Jesus's arm, you know, that's just kind of sweet and nice and makes you laugh. But The real image here in this Luke 15 story, which that fresco of the third century gives us, is that this was a giant beast put on the shoulders of the shepherd and tremendous effort to carry this sheep to safety. The cost was great. So we see the cost in that story. And then think about the two sons. And again, we've mentioned these things in previous weeks, so I'll just go over them quickly. But to restore the younger son to the family was a great cost to the father. Remember, he humiliated himself. He took shame upon himself to run out to the edge of the village and lifting up his garments, something a patriarch in that culture wouldn't have done to bring the younger son. And he takes the shame of the younger son upon himself in order to bring the younger son into his family to prevent him from experiencing the ridicule and and belittling that the villagers would have inevitably placed upon the younger son. Or with the elder son, remember the, the father actually leaves the banquet that he's thrown The elder brother has insulted the father by not coming into the banquet. The father will leave the banquet. Again, no patriarch in that day would have done so, but leaves the banquet, goes out to see the elder son and entreats him to come in and feast at the table with his younger brother and the villagers. These are pictures in this story of a very costly invitation to the banquet, but the cost isn't borne by the rebellious brothers or sons. The cost is borne by the father. And that is, this is a picture not of cheap grace, but of costly grace. Peter writes, you were ransomed now to us, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. And the father pays this high price in the story, not because he's expected to. In fact, he's expected to do just the opposite. He's expected to make the son pay, to save the honor of the family in that traditional culture. But he does these things. He takes this cost upon himself because of his deep love 
for his sons, his rebellious and lost sons, I should say. These parables taken together give us a glimpse of the redemptive suffering of God on our behalf, which is at the heart of our gospel, of our good news to the world. God, in the person of his son, lays down his life. He takes upon himself public shame by hanging on a cross. As Hebrews says, he goes outside the camp so that we can be set free from death and take our place at his banquet table. These parables, these three parables are, again, just pictures of what God is doing in the gospel itself. And, the, and Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He took the cost upon himself so that you could come into his banquet and feast and celebrate with him. His poverty enabled our riches. How many of us continue to struggle with both past and present sins, with twinges, maybe even just bucket loads of guilt and shame that weigh us down, that make us think that we are merely second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. If, if we're even in the kingdom, then we're somewhere in the nosebleed section. But the reality is, is that there are no second rows. There are no back row seats at the banquet table of the Father. And if we think that way about ourselves, it just is a, an indication that we're misunderstanding the radical grace and love of the God who is revealed through his son, Jesus. Because all enter the banquet on equal terms and all are at the banquet equally. All enter freely. And that inner struggle sometimes with, am I worthy? Do I belong? Actually just helps us to see that our hearts haven't quite understood the radical grace of God revealed to us in his son. This banquet is freely given and fully paid for. And the joy that is flowing at the Father's feast. You know, Psalm 16 ends with, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The joy that is deeply flowing at the Father's banquet table is, yes, to be fair to this text for sure, it is the joy of heaven that has joy, more joy over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need to repent. There's tremendous joy at one who's come home. But what's underneath that joy? What's the driving joy of the banquet of all creation, the banquet that we're headed to? It's the joy of the redemptive love of God. It's seeing his redemptive love and it's celebrating that redemptive love in our lives. That is what fuels the joy and feasting that we partake in at his table. Now, I want to say something about the sacraments for a moment, just about the communion meal. We'll come next week to the, to the Lord's table, and, and we are celebrating in that meal our inclusion in the Father's great banquet on the basis of the cost paid by the Lord Jesus Christ, because when we come to communion, we are remembering and proclaiming his death, the fact that his body was broken on our behalf. It was a great cost to him, but we were invited freely to come and partake and share in that meal. At no cost to ourselves, at great cost to our God, we are brought to his table. So as we wrap up Luke 15, I just want to finish with three words, kind of thinking about what does this bring, you know, in terms of our lives. The first word is repent. Repent and come to the feast. 
What I mean by that is, is what I said earlier, but to accept being found, to acknowledge your unworthiness, and to let go of those things that are against the will of the one who's welcoming you home. To relinquish our idols, to lay them down, and to embrace his embrace of us. There's a wonderful hymn that has a line, all the fitness he requireth, that he requires is to feel our need of him. What leads to repentance? Remember, it's the kindness of God. And if this is something where you're wrestling, maybe you feel like you're more of an elder brother, you've conformed to the standards of the culture and you've done well and you know, you're respectable and that, that's important to you. Or maybe you feel like you're more of the younger brother and you've lived a, a free-spirited kind of life of rebellion and doing whatever you want, even if it's socially unacceptable. But in either case, there's a lostness there. And the only thing that can melt the rebellion within our own hearts is the reality of the grace and love of God who takes great co- the, the, the cost upon himself and freely invites you, welcomes you, embraces you. This story again leaves us with the elder brother on the outside and it issues this gentle warning. It's not so gentle actually, it's pretty strong by the asymmetry of the story, the third story that will you come in or will you stay in your obstinate rebellion and lostness? Will you be warmed and melted by the grace of the Father? The second word is rest. I'd love for you to associate Luke 15 with rest. What do I mean when I say that? I mean that the striving is over. You know, we strive, a lot of us strive. We strive to make ourselves acceptable to others. We strive to silence the inner critic that a lot of us experience on a daily basis that says, you know, you're nothing, you're not good enough. You need this or that and you don't have it. We strive to make ourselves feel accomplished somehow that we're going to be okay. They're all kind of plans of some way of self-salvation, of staying in control. But all that, the, 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 what God is, what, what is revealed in Luke 15 about the heart of our God and his grace and love toward us, that and that alone can bring us to genuine rest. You remember the words in Matthew 11 where Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The reality is we're all carrying around, we're under some yoke and any other yoke isn't gonna bring rest but this one does. There is a tremendous rest in recognizing that it's a free offering of God's great forgiving, sacrificial, redemptive love and it's an invitation to be feasting at his table. So my encouragement is, in light of Luke 15 and these three stories, and especially the third story, to just rest. Rest in the gift of his grace and his love. Rest in the reality that you've been brought in, if you are in Christ this evening, that you've been brought in to his banquet table. And then the third word is rejoice. So repent, rest, and rejoice. That which fuels the joy of this banquet that we've been invited into is the amazing grace and love of God expressed in Christ. Everything in the Christian life flows from the reality of God as a gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who embraces rebels and makes us children, sons and daughters. So rejoice in the Lord, Paul says. I will say it again. Rejoice as you rest as you feast at his table. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love expressed in this 
set of stories in Luke 15. We thank you that you pursue and find lost things and celebrate with those who have been found. God, we're not worthy to be called your sons or daughters. We thank you that you have embraced us, loved us. I pray for any here this evening for whom this is maybe an internal struggle right now and they've been resisting. I just pray that you break the resistance by this picture in Luke 15 of your love and that they would be welcomed to your table, even tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.